Welcome to Photo Show Live. My guest today is Pradeep Malde, and we will be talking about his book, From Where Loss Comes, which was published by Charcoal Press, which is part of the Charcoal Book Club. Uh, and of course, Charcoal Book Club is a sponsor of the show, and it is a wonderful way to add to your photo book collection. I have a, a couple more announcements from Charcoal. First, they, of course, host the annual Chico Review, uh, which is a juried photo book retreat. And the jurors this year are Antoine Dagada, Stacy Kranitz, Curran Hadelberg, Anastasia Samoylova, Igor Posner, Vanessa Winship, and more. That is open until November 27th for applications. So if you were thinking of doing the Chico Review this year at Chico Hot Springs Resort, uh, you should probably get to that now. The other thing I want to announce is pretty exciting. Uh, Charcoal Book Club is starting Charcoal Editions, which is a curated online game gallery selling open edition silver gelatin prints and that means uh if you love books and prints like i do uh you can uh add to your print collection now as well as your book collection uh for a pretty reasonable price you probably know that sometime around the 80s limited editions became really popular uh with collectors and galleries and it created some scarcity with printing which of course drove up the prices uh but charcoal editions is going to do something a little different. They are offering open edition silver gelatin prints, and the purchase price of the prints will reflect a more equitable division between the artist, the printer, and the gallery. So you're not paying for a signature, you're not paying for a limited print, uh, but you are paying for a photo that you love printed in a traditional darkroom. Every silver gelatin print is handmade by Sergio Pertel and the master printers at Black and White on White in Brooklyn, New York, uh, to ensure the highest quality photographic print. Uh, Charcoal's motto is beauty over scarcity, and it represents a return to the more democratic and accessible nature of photography. Uh, also, listeners to this show get a 10% discount through the end of the year. So visit charcoaleditions.com and then use the code REALPHOTOSHOW when you check out. All right. Again, my guest today is Pradeep Malde, and we had a special co-host at the gallery when Pradeep did his live show, and that's Ryan Casey. Uh, of course, some of you will recognize the name Ryan Casey because we did a lot of collaborations at the JKC Gallery. And of course, Ryan is a previous guest on the show and is now the director of the Art Gallery at Stockton University. Uh, the other thing I do want to let you know is that there won't be a video version of this show because I had a, a lot of technical difficulties uh, with the monitor in the gallery. Uh, so the video keeps flashing back and forth between my laptop, desktop, and the Zoom image. But this one works really well as an audio podcast. Uh, I will post two images on the website that we do talk about. Uh, they're referenced by page numbers from the book. But outside those two images, this one really does uh, work more like a traditional audio podcast. So uh, Pradeep Malde, I'll, I will read his bio during the show, uh, but he is a Guggenheim fellow, uh, and he does teach at the University of South Sewanee, Tennessee. And uh, we have uh, an amazing conversation about this book, which deals with female genital mutilation and cutting. And we will also talk about Sarah Mwaga, Sarah was the founder of the Anti-Female Genital Mutilation Network, and Pradeep traveled with Sarah for more than 3,000 miles over three years to create this work. And I imagine Sarah would have been part of the conversations about this book when the book was being presented, like we did at the JKC Gallery. But Sarah tragically passed away from COVID 
during the production of the book. Uh, so uh, some heavy conversation, but also a lot of great insight into how Pradeep works and his philosophy on using photography as a way of trying to bring people together and as a source for healing. And he's uh, really just a, a joy to listen to. So uh, thank you for listening. Enjoy the show and we will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Welcome to uh, Photo Show Live at the JKC Gallery. I am so thrilled to have uh, Pradeep Malde today to talk about a book that uh, I've been looking at for a while now. And really, um, it's, it's an amazing book, From Where Lost Comes. It's printed beautifully. Uh, there's prints here on the wall in the gallery. But before we get to that, we have a special co-host today, someone uh, some of you may already know, uh, Ryan Casey, who is over at uh, Stockton at her new gallery. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Ryan. Hi, how are, how, how are you? <laughs> yeah, good. So yeah, those of you familiar with the gallery know that Ryan and I have collaborated on a lot of things. So uh, I'm really glad you are here. And uh, Pradeep, welcome. Thank you. Yes. So it's a joy uh, to be just here. A, a little uh, read from your bio here. Your bio is nice and short. I appreciate that on your website. <laughs> <laughs> Pradeep Malde is a photographer and professor at the University of the South Swanee, Tennessee, USA. Much of his work considers the experience of loss and how it serves as a catalyst for regeneration. Works are held in the collections of the Museum of the Art Institute Chicago, Princeton University Museum, right around the corner, uh, Victoria and Albert Museum, London, Yale University Museum, and the Scottish National Portrait Gallery, Edinburgh. Among others, he is a 2018 Guggenheim Fellow, which, by the way, uh, helped fund this project, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Malde was born in Arusha, Tanzania in 19... Well, I don't have to say the date. You can. I don't mind. 1957. <laughs> October 22nd, if anyone wants to send me a birthday card, I'm not. <laughs> oh, that's coming soon. Happy birthday. <laughs> Let's, um, I thought I would just start uh, by introducing this project by reading the, uh, the first paragraph from the book. Uh, and then we can talk a little bit about that as well. Uh, so uh, this is from, for, from Where Loss Comes. It's in the introduction to the book. And the, the book is so beautifully laid out as well. Uh, so, so much pain goes covered. And I want your photographs to provide an eye, another way of opening what is felt in isolation. Saramwaga said, as we worked together during the summer of 2016 in Tanzania, an activist and community leader in Dodoma, she was, she was talking of a pain and suffering that is private, sacrificial about community, and yet clashes with values that are considered inalienable, our fundamental human rights, combating female genital mutilation, circumcision, cutting, has been a 20-year commitment for Sarah and her female colleagues. Their work is challenging because they seek within their own communities and their activism pushes up against generations of deep-rooted cultural and traditional practices. Any possibility of transformation of moving away from FGMC and its related cycles of trauma has to depend on mutual trust and respect. Sarah and I felt that the reason for these cycles was deeper than just local cultural practice. Both of us sense that any conversation about change here mattered at a more global human scale, that FGMC was one of many harmful behaviors that shared the same root. Both of us wanted to place this conversation in a broader one about community to take it into other communities in such a way that the matter would serve as a mirror rather than a spectacle. Sarah also understood this before I did. And I, I should have stated ahead of time, the I is you, Pradeep, uh, in this yes. essay. Yes. As a westernized man, 
I could be considered an outsider to this issue, yet I am Tanzanian by birth and upbringing. I left the country in my teens in the 1970s, but where, when Sarah invited me to work with her on this sensitive topic, I knew I had returned home. I am humbled by the trust that she and so many women granted me as they let me into their lives. And so I, I thought that was important to say because there's somebody not here, and that's Sarah. And I thought, Pradeep, if you could talk a little bit about Sarah and this work. Yeah. Um, uh, thank you for starting in this way as well. You know, the whole project is first and foremost to generate conversations and a certain amount of introspection. It's not about me and it's not about Sarah insofar as uh, we think of in artistic terms. It is about where we are within the broader conversation. Sarah was profoundly uh, instrumental in transforming many communities in Tanzania away from these very dangerous practices um, of FGMC. Um, round about early 2000, she uh, started up her non-governmental organization called AFNET, the Anti-Female Genital Cutting Mutilation Network in Tanzania. And she realized as she started up this NGO that along with working with leaders within small communities, she actually had to also set up a different kind of network that would deal with the broader issues of gender-based violence, of women's health, uh, of economic development among women first, and from there go on to education and actual medical treatment and so on. So Sarah's view of all of this from the outset was a very broad and very strategic view. And I think that she really wanted me to be part of that, that strategy of broadening conversations. I met Sarah um, when I was out there in Dodoma in Tanzania, which is actually the capital of Tanzania, central Tanzania. And I met Sarah when I was there visiting as a part of a trip that had been sponsored by my university to set up partnerships in the, the educational system there. And Sarah was one of a number of leaders, community leaders and non-governmental organization directors who we met in the hope of setting up internships and so on. And all the meetings were over. Sarah and I were sitting in the courtyard of this old hotel having a beer. We were, we were exhausted from a long day of talking. Everybody had gone. And I just asked Sarah a simple question. You know, I said, how did you start doing this? And um, she was very forthright. And she said that she had sisters, older and younger. And through various quirks of circumstances, she was the one who did not get cut. Her older and younger sister did. And somehow she realized that through this sort of associated pain that she experienced, uh, there were profound injustices being performed at a very young age. She was aware of it and decided that at some point she had to do something about it. So as that conversation grew, and then she asked me how I was, why I was sitting here asking questions in photography and so on. And I told her my story. And that's when she said, you know, we can do something together. And I want, I want to give you access to all of these stories and tools and experiences. 
And she wanted my voice to not be about me at all, but she wanted my skills to be used for this. Yeah. Sarah was an activist for this FGMC, but also what I get from the book and especially the introduction is there was, there was no uh, manner in which you were going to come in and say, you're, th- this is wrong. You're wrong. Um, uh, you're bad people, right? This, you talk about uh, developing a relationship, having trust with the people you're photographing. And if you read mm-hmm. the stories in the book, what you find is that people are just sharing these stories and it's, it's very non-judgmental in the way that the stories are shared. Yeah. Yeah. That was really important to me as well. And the thing that Sarah and I saw in each other was a lifetime for each of us. And we were about the same age, a lifetime of seeing things from many different points of view. So both Sarah and I really did grow up in very multicultural, multi-political societies and communities. And I think that conversation um, that we had became particularly crystalline given what happens, what has happened globally with democracies becoming very radicalized and, and oppositional. You know, the capacity to have discourse is going out the window. And that's, that was really part of our concern as well. I should say also that Sarah's not here with us because she passed away. She passed away in 2021, in January, from COVID mm. in a country in Tanzania where the president of the nation, who also died from COVID, was a total denier. Oh, wow. <laughs> he was out there toting his magic cola um, as a way of uh, protecting himself from COVID and refused to put statistics out globally about what was actually happening in America, in Tanzania, prevented doctors from actually putting medical science to practice because mm. of his beliefs. So it's right. really tragic. Yeah. So I th- I'm going to just read a, a couple passages from the stories told in the book. This is from page 14. Uh, Before you more than me. Uh, and um, it's, it's Maba Walala near Dodoma. Maba Walala. Walala. In 2017. Uh, Margaret Nagaya, a former... Gariba under the tree where she performed female genital cutting. As I bring you to my tree and flow into your eyes through this photograph, this window, you become me and through me the tree, taking you to all that I come from and you turning carry it forward before us like the shield that all sacrifices are. The blazing sky, its castoffs burning through the field below. This is not pain. This is not your pain. It is more than me, more than you. This now is us. Do you want to uh, say something about Yeah. That? You know, just before we started, uh, Rianne and you and I were talking about process and how these things tie together. So I'll just say that this kind of photograph relied heavily on me working with an 8x10 camera. So a large format field camera, which has movements that can be used to make the photograph. And the large format camera lets the lens and the film back move independently of each other, right? So when you can do that, if you look carefully in this photograph, the leaves at the very top of the image are in focus. And then her face is in focus. And the rest 
seems to be dramatically out of focus, even though that tree trunk was not that far behind her. So this is all achieved through the, the sort of technical facilities that the camera affords, right? The movements and all of that. Then there's this other part, which is the process of printing itself. And it allowed me to, ex to express very nuanced tones between the reflections of the sunlight bouncing off freshly tilled earth in the background and setting up a relationship between those and the sky itself. So the clouds that are up there seem to be on the field. The things that have fallen um, down are somehow part of an internal kind of experience. And that's why I ended up writing The Blazing Sky, its cast-offs burning through the field below. And that then helps me set up and us as viewers begin to sort of think about the metaphoric experience as expressed in the images of what it may feel like to be dealing with the inner turmoil of cutting and being a cutter and understanding that somehow this was the only way that seemed open to go on as a community of women within a larger community of other powers and men and so on. So then you go, you end up talking about pain in a different way. And I felt like as I was writing the text, as well as making the photographs, just as I was kind of channeling, if you will, experiences visually, I also felt like I needed to channel these multifarious points of view through the text. So when I, when I write about you or I, suddenly that you and I becomes a lot more cloudy, you know, so the pain is not ours. It's not yours. It's more than me and more than you. This is now us. I'm going to ask, and, and if this is okay with you, we didn't actually uh, talk about this. Instead of me stumbling through words, could I have you read from page 18, if that's possible? And if not, yeah. I can still do it. <laughs> no, I, I can do it. Oh, um, thank you. So, and you have a lovely um, voice. The <laughs> image on page 18 is... What was ours? Um, yeah, what was ours? And this, these are, are two, at that time, 14-year-old girls. Um, they're, of course, now young women, Piliska and Dorcas. And this is Piliska Marwa on the left and Dorcas Elias Langi um, on a sacred mountain called Sasuni Mountain. And they're sort of standing between two huge boulders. So the caption reads, the young girl on the left was recently cut, but her friend on the right ran away when about to be cut. Since then, and upon the insistence of her parents, she has been accepted back into the community, um, she being uh, Dorcas, who ran away. And both of them at that point were going to school together. And then text. So in the book, there's sort of three sections of text with every photograph. And the third section sometimes is not there at all, but at other times it's like a whole page worth of stuff. And these texts are not all, they've, they're very fluid. They go from being descriptive sometimes to actual interviews, to these sort of introspective and fluid movements um, in my head and thinking. Um, I've also tried to set the text up in such a way that the book itself serves as a, a conversation starter, you know, like they're almost like prompts. And at other times I've set the text up um, in a didactic way. Uh, not all of us um, are so into photography that we can look and look and look, right? And so 
part of it is how do we think as photographers? How do we negotiate the sort of murky territory of representing the experiences of others? How do we think about symbol and metaphor and so on? So all of this is present. The text says, um, a narrow band of clarity, photographic focus, flows across their face. The two girls are wedged between blocks of tone emerging, almost squeezed up from a boulder's edge. So there's that photo teaching bit that we think about as photographers. And then we think about this symbolically. What, what does it mean to be squeezed between two blocks of tone? So I say they exist between their entrapment, or it seems as though these almost women, almost girls, are leaning into the possibility of becoming the prospect of focus, a place of translucence and knowing. Briska and Dorcas are still at school. Dorcas told me that when she was taken with her friend to be cut, she ran away. I am now accepted back into the community, she said, but only because my parents told everyone that they agreed with my decision. But now, with her father dead, she is being cared for by her mother and one of her uncles, who disapproved of her unwillingness to get cut. And Dorcas is engaged. Her friend was cut. These are complex situations. As I listened to both women, barely 14 years old, talk about their experiences, their bravery, their bewilderment, it was clear that they, along with their community, were on the edge of change, tumbling into the unknown, one kind of fear being exchanged for another. In those situations where you're listening to those stories, I think it is, you, you mentioned something about the idea of like being an outsider in this conversation. And I think it, it's important to sort of think about for students, how you actually do that, where you are empathetic and present and sort of withholding of judgment and how, how that process actually happens, you know, because I, I think that's a really difficult thing to, to teach to students, but I do think it's a really important one, um, not only to have empathy, but also know in those situations how you are able to listen to someone's trauma. Uh, and so can you talk a little bit about that? You know, what, what that experience was like for you, maybe even how you prepared to get to that point? Because I do think it's, it's immensely difficult uh, to be in that space. Yeah. Yeah, that's, thank you. Because that is like one of the most crucial things that we have to consider as photographers, and we hardly talk about it enough and teach it. It is a skill. It can be learned. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes years. So this work has come about only because I had spent, oh gosh, well, since pretty much 1990, 91, I spent time um, working extensively in Trenchtown in Kingston, Jamaica, a part of the city where most Kingstonians don't go to. And they say, you're crazy, you're going deep into gang territory, which it, it still is. And spent nights there, stayed with, with people that I was wanting to get to know and to work with. I always felt that I was not going to take things away from the community, but I was going in there to put things back or to put myself into 
So my photographic work was always first about what it would mean to the community. But really out of all of that, it just is this. It's simple. You should be able to sit down and have a meal with anybody. Right? If you can sit down and and we've we've read books about this, right? How having a cup of tea can can heal communities and so on. But it's those little day-to-day things. Put your camera aside, learn to talk, learn to be with people, learn to be fascinated by their lives and not be condescending, be humble, and not bring your judgments to their conversations. Um, so it's all, all those kinds of things. I think as teachers, we can certainly introduce this into our class. We don't do it enough. To take a photograph means putting a piece of equipment between you and another human being. And in order to do that, you have to have trust first. In order to have trust, you have to have conversations. In order to have conversations, you have to be very kind and courteous and gentle and not have as much as possible a sort of prejudgment of, of the situation. But I, yeah, Rianne, I think you're absolutely right. This is something we could do more as educators. Well, and, and I thought about the work that you're doing isn't photojournalism in the strictest sense, but I think that that so many people go into photojournalism without that skill set of being empathetic and being thoughtful about what they're leaving behind. And, and so I, I think it's a really good, you know, everything you said, I think is a really good mark to where students maybe we should start at. Yeah. You know, leaving our communities better than, than how we entered them is an important feature in anything that you do creatively. So thank you. I agree. Thank you. And then the sort of the, you were talking about this, this intermediation, this camera between you and the person. And then on the other side of that, there's the stories they're telling, the photographs you're making, the work, and then there's the presentation of that. And you started to touch on that a little bit earlier. What is the proper presentation of that? Is it, is it appropriate to have this, this incredibly beautifully bound book and incredibly beautiful work about stories and, and, and portraits and, and people where the situation might be horrific to some or at least of an incredibly serious nature? And, and I think it is it is appropriate because I think the way you, the portraits you made of the people are respectful and there's power in the portraits that you made and the stories are told in a, in a very, I would say, caring way as well. But do you want to speak to that part of it as well a little bit? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I think we all struggle with as artists. I know, Brianne, you've, you've mentioned it in one of your talks that I was watching earlier about the tension between beauty and and things that are difficult to for, to deal with um, tragedy if you will and ugliness um, our human the uglier side of our human nature and it is difficult to say well i'm going to f- photograph something that is very ugly and then struggle with how, why should it be beautiful if it is ugly? And there's a, a writer, Elaine Scarry, actually, the book right here. I read, I read this book a while back on beauty and uh, oh, yes. being just. It's a really amazing book. It's maybe one of the most important books I've ever read. In, in a short few sentences, what she really proposes 
is that the experience of the beautiful, let's stop calling it beauty, but the experience of the beautiful is uh, an experience that reminds us of our best possible selves. And that if we approach it that way, then it's affiliated to justice. That justice is essentially about agreements so that we may move towards a more considerate and kind and just society and communities. The experience of the beautiful is a reminder of us being our most enlightened selves, our kindest selves, our most utopic selves. And to overlay an approach and a consideration of pain and suffering and ugliness, if you will, with the experience of the beautiful helps us deal with those darker aspects of human nature, of ourselves, and try and adjust them and strive towards the better. So, um, by the way, that's that's an incredible definition of beauty. That is, that's the most complex and simple and complete definition of beauty I think I've ever heard. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, she's yeah. It's it's really. I mean, this is the kind of book that we all should be sleeping with on our, you know, under our heads every night. It's so mm-hmm. great. Now the work has been out a while, and and you've mm-hmm. talked about it a bit. What kind of responses have you uh, been getting to the work? Really w- wonderful responses. I've, I've been very lucky. The first thing I should say is that more often than not, the the thing that a person says is they're surprised by how beautiful the book is. <laughs> and it's exactly what I wanted. And um, I was extremely lucky in finding a designer slash publisher, Jesse Lenz of Charcoal Press, who completely... <laughs> oh, great call out. Yeah. Um, oh, shout out. Um <laughs> Yeah, Jesse, Jesse really uh, got the work immediately and in a way that others who had approached did not. Um, there were publishers who wanted to, you know, wanted other people to write all the text. There were publishers who wanted to change the sequence, some who wanted to edit images out and put others in. And none of that was right for me. I, By the time I was approaching publishers, I had the text written. And I had the images selected. I had them sequenced. I was absolutely certain about the book and how it mm. should be. Now that sounds like a really arrogant thing to say. It does, but um, <laughs> and it is. And um, but I felt its rightness because. So I I worked out the whole sequence of the book, and then I sat down for weeks on end every day, you know, almost like the way writers do where they line up their pencils and write and write and write. But I, I'd spent weeks just writing. And as I was writing, my wonderful partner and wife, Rachel, who's also a photographer, and our house, I'm in my studio right now, our house is right next door, but she, like, you know, I'd go into the house and mm. she'd say, oh, okay, I know what you've been doing. And I was just getting very upset, but in a good way, feeling feeling things intensely. And as I was doing that, I realized this was right. What I was doing was right because I was feeling it, even though I'd been living with this work for so long, I was feeling it anew as the words began to come out. So the responses have recognized that, and I I really appreciate that. The most um, difficult thing is that this is not the kind of book that you flip through. 
And I've had responses where people have not given the book time. And mm-hmm. I can't blame them for that. You know, we live in a culture where we flip through things in every way. We flip through relationships, through news, through, you know, create deeply thought out creative experiences and stimuli. So it's a problem that the book is not perhaps the ideal way of doing this. But it, it is if you take the time. Um, yeah. It is. Yeah. I told you last night, I just, I just sat with it for 45 minutes in a mm. room with no interruption. And that was the way yeah. to sit with this book. Yeah. Yeah. I'd also add that, you know, speaking of skill sets, I think it is maybe something of a skill set that we need to be teaching people of all ages. It's not just students um, of how to sit with trauma and hard things Mm. Um, and and not just for the understanding part, but be able to, you know, really process other people's experiences or or your own and be able to sit with it for a while. And that when you look at hard and difficult and challenging and painful things that those are equally as important as the joy you have in other moments that the, those things have to interact with each other. So I think a, a book like this, an experience like this, I think we need to be teaching people that you can sit and be sad and be in pain and it can be hard, but that there's a worthwhile process to that. I, don't, I, I think that's immensely important to, to balance your joy with also understanding the pain uh, that's present in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and I kind of have a follow-up. Um, so I'm reading, I'm finishing up a book right now um, by Maggie Nelson called The Art of Cruelty. And mm. it's a really um, quite interesting book. And it, it talks a lot about, because a lot of my work, my tutorial work is about trauma and pain. And that's a big part of it. And she talks a lot about like, what kind of things, what, what are we doing to ourselves when we look at hard images, when we, when we read difficult stories? And she makes a point about aesthetics. And I thought it's sort of related to what you said that um, sometimes the most challenging and hard things, if you put it as is up there, you know, very sort of you're face to face with it and don't incorporate any sort of beauty that doesn't necessarily elicit you know, change in itself. Yeah. Like, you know, she spoke a little bit about some of the images that you have that come out about refugees and, and how that supposedly elicits people's action, but that doesn't always connect. And I think what you said about the idea of making something beautiful can also be change worthy is an interesting idea, you know, that, that you can create images that are about something horrific while also hopefully inspiring people to to make progress you know um so i I just thought it was really interesting the idea that beauty can be that it doesn't have to ugly doesn't always have to be ugly for it to create something um, important yeah yeah absolutely you know and and i think that it helps us kind of distinguish um, just, uh, I mean, I think photojournalism is absolutely necessary. Um, reportage is necessary, but it, it's a different approach to this because the photojournalistic, to some extent, needs to be episodic, that it bears witness. This kind of work is certainly evidentiary in some ways, but it is more about internalizing the experience of others and therefore 
um, it becomes more poetic in a way and more fluid. And if it becomes that, it then conditions us. It's a form of brain surgery that conditions our behaviors, you know. Um, and that's really what I want to do. I actually say something in the introduction about this. Uh, let's see if I can find it quickly here. Uh, I'm deeply aware that strategies reacting to FGMC have themselves been critiqued, mainly for being adventitious and from the West, from outside. There is now a widespread recognition that combating FGMC has to be generated from within and based on reflection and traditional experience. Sarah Mwaga, the cutters, and former Ngariba, with whom I have spent time and photographed, clearly understand this. Their experience in helping communities reshape traditions towards a more humane practice stands to contribute to a deeper understanding of other tragedies. Neither they nor I are naive about the global, cultural, and political ground on which the fight against FGMC is staged, nor can matters of access, identity, and privilege be avoided, especially in this kind of a gender-specific situation. And this is the crux of it. But I am convinced that shared knowledge of experiences such as these, often cloaked as solitary and personal, actually make us wiser. The way we share in this case by photographs, is also important. There is an Arab proverb that says, even the palest ink is better than the sharpest memory, more so because the writing of experience, in this case, has to resonate rather than replicate or document. And this same type of resonance helps us direct conversations within our communities about the relationship between women's health and environmental health, for instance, these conversations need to be fluid, open-ended, but with purpose, embracing rather than confrontational. So it is with these photographs. Explicit content can shock and horrify, but it also turns the tragedy of others into spectacle. And I'm not into that. Neither genital pain, gender-based violence, or environmental crisis are spectacles. They come from behaviors that we are all complicit in. Hence, my photographic sharing has to be gentle and kind and come from a poetic expression rather than a literal one, from the implicit rather than the explicit. I am compelled to understand what leads to cutting away the sensory body. The root cause actually seems ancient and is aligned to my concern for the way loss affects us all. The linkage, for instance, between loss of self and the way one fits into a community is a tense and perpetual human dynamic. And this begs broader questions. Yeah, I feel like what, what, you, what you mentioned there, too, I mean, overlaps with so much of what we see happening in terms of photojournalism. There's another great book called Photographing Refugees that, that sort of questions, you know, our, our use of, of images and what it actually does, you know, and that idea of spectacle versus introspection, I think is such an important element of, of, of your work. And so I think, I think that idea of understanding the difference between what you're photographing to produce change uh, versus what you're photographing to just elicit an initial response. And that's it. It's, that's, that's all, you know, again, you know, maybe in some ways, like looking through photo books, like yours is meditative, you know, where you have to, sit with it and think about it and um, be quiet 
and if that, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. And, that, and, that, and that's hard for people, but um, I think maybe this is a great opportunity to encourage people to do that uh, with your yeah. text and maybe do that with, with other work that they're reading or, or, or visually engaging with. Yeah. There's so many great photo books like that that just deserve days of looking slow looking. Yeah. And that kind of approach and sensitivity is a skill set. It's a skill set that's very different from wanting to uh, parachute into a war zone, right? Kind yeah. of idea. Where, where did all this come from? How did you, um, how did you get into this? Well, I mean, my parents are, you know, they had a photo business in Tanzania mm. uh, that they started in, in, I think, 1957, they opened the store the day I was born. And uh, my brothers and I grew up in that whole culture, um, uh, making photographs in a part of the world that back then was um, exquisite, you know, rich with wildlife, not very heavily populated. It was pretty exotic and also very, very multicultural, very cosmopolitan, small town that we lived in. So, yeah, we had pretty much cameras in our hands the moment we were born. I only really took an interest in it seriously when I was uh, at the equivalent of high school in England and uh, just decided that one of the things I could study after high school was photography and go to art school. I wasn't really interested in doing that. I was more interested in going to study geography or something else. But I thought, man, I'll just say yes to the first college or university that sends me a letter of acceptance. And lo and behold, it was the art school that wrote back and said, you got a place if you want it. So I went. So that's how I got into it. I also very early on was lucky in having some interesting um, accidents of fate kind of come my way. One of them was to see an exhibition of photographs of American uh, works from the modernist era including Imogen Cunningham and Edward Weston, you know, that whole crew. But I was stunned when I, I saw platinum prints mm. by some of these people. And to the point where I was just infatuated by that, but didn't know how to, to make them. There was nothing out there really worth speaking of to work from. Then I accidentally bumped into an amazing scientist uh, a few years later, Dr. Mike Ware, who I think is, is one of the great voices in the chemistry of alternative photographic processes in this time. And Mike and I are dear friends. He is a, a huge mentor to me and has been very responsible for transforming my life as an artist. You know, Mike often says to the world out there that he believes strongly in putting the best available science to the use of artists. I feel like I got the best available scientist <laughs> to help me grow as an artist as well. So all of that came to this. Other things that have happened that are really important, uh, so that's the sort of aesthetic technical side, but I have colleagues here at Swanee. It's an amazing university, and it is very porous in the sense that one can shift from department to department, discipline to discipline, and there's always an open door. And I happened to meet and start working with um, the director of our uh, civic engagement program here at Swanee, Dixon Myers, from way back, who just literally put his arm around my neck and said, you're coming to Trenchtown with me. He did it again, <laughs> like, you're coming to Haiti with me. Let's go. Let's do something there. 
Um, and at the same time, a, another colleague of mine, Deborah McGrath, who's a professor of biology here, and um, and we have together taught each other a lot about working in small communities through the particular framework of our individual disciplines. Mm -hmm. So I learned a lot for the last 25, 30 years about using photography from within communities to help them move together, uh, if you will. And that's where this weird sociological yeah, documentary yeah. interest comes yeah. from. Yeah. And I'd say it's not even documentary, you know, because this is where it started. Um, you know, like if, if we're sitting around talking here, we don't say to anybody, hey, you want to see my family album? You want to see my family photos? You want to see photographs of me when I was getting on? The moment you do that with somebody, there's already some agreement. There's some trust. Or especially if you do do it, then there is, you've said I like you enough to show you my life, right? It's just on the other side that they'll and say yes in, <laughs> and mean it. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, exactly. <laughs> and when you do that sort of thing in small communities that are kind of stressed or fractured, you actually stand to start up conversations about what values are shared and what histories are shared. And in that, because they're using photographs, they learn quickly to use their photographic activities within the community as arguments that they can present to mm -hmm. outsiders, you know, so politicians, development officials, and so on. And in stressed communities, that dynamic of combination of family photo albums that they've generated themselves and then beginning to look at the world around them, the environments around them, and building up visual arguments for their needs is a powerful combination. And that's mm. what we've been doing in these places. And that's that's my background. I, I just have one last question on, on your background is uh, mm -hmm. in Tanzania, uh, yeah. London, Suwanee, Tennessee. Yeah. <laughs> How did you end up in yeah. Tennessee, Suwanee, Tennessee? Um, well, actually, it's Tanzania, India, Spain, oh. <laughs> uh, Southern England, Scotland, <laughs> 10 years in Scotland, which was the most transformative moment of my life there yeah. and still remains mm -hmm. that way. Um, I came to, to Tennessee to visit a friend and go for a walk. And she um, said, well, let's go to the strange place called Swanee because you're a Brit. You may be interested. It's sort of like that. And I did and met the chairman of the art department here. We stayed in touch for years. And while I was teaching in Edinburgh in Scotland, and then he asked me to come and teach here for a semester. And that turned into a 10-year track appointment. I've been here 32 years. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ryan, did you have any uh, closing? Uh, yeah, I, actually, um, I, I was going to end with this because I, I think it is a, another skill set that I think is important is how do you process the grief and trauma that, that you're listening to and working with? Because I think that that's immensely challenging. And there's a toll, I think, that that does take if um, if we aren't really thoughtful about it. So can you talk a little bit about what your experiences have been as you deal with this immensely heavy project? I really love my family and that helps a lot and they know that. So that's the immediate sense of experience there that keeps me even keeled, that I, I feel very fortunate and I cherish those kinds of things. And then at the other end, you know, we, 
it's hard to imagine this, but when you look at like, a, you know, here we are living in the Anthropocene as such, and we realize that one of the reasons why we have a problem in the Anthropocene is because we've been burning up fossil fuels. These fossil fuels came from forests. The forests existed, what, billions of years ago? I mean, a long time back. In that kind of frame, this, what we have is, it's all going to go, you know, we're not going to have it uh, at some point. It's all gone. All these things that we do on a day-to-day basis to preserve our photographs make platinum plate imprints because they last <laughs> hundreds of years. All of that is just mush. It's nothing. It's a tiny layer. And I actually take heart in that, that if, mm. if it ultimately is potentially so insignificant, these day-to-day moments that we have, these pains that we inflict on others, the joys that we receive from others, if it's also momentary, then let us do everything possible to redress what we think is wrong and everything possible to cherish what we think is lovable, you know, at the same time. Hey, that really keeps me going. I love that. Thank you yeah, for asking that. No, it's, yeah, it's, that's important. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's really um, important for artists to to understand that in order to continue to work with hard and difficult topics is, is, is to do those things is fine. The, like I watch terrible TV. Like, that's like, like I watch TV that is just awful, <laughs> you know, but it, cause it's silly. And, and, but I think that that that's like a way to find these, those momentary pieces of joy to balance with sometimes the hard conversations and imagery that we all work with. And so I, I you know, it's that idea of like balance and, and keeping that really yeah. in the forefront and everything that you do. Yeah. So th- thank you. Thank you for, for, thank for you. that. <laughs> That's a great place to end on. We have a, a lot of students and, and guests in the audience and we'll, we'll take some questions, but uh, I'll stop the recording before that. Cause I like those to be mm-hmm. free and unfettered and yeah. no one worrying about being recorded, but I want to thank you Pradeep. This has been fantastic. Thank you very much thank for doing you. it. It's been an honor and uh, I cherish all your podcasts. It's really lovely to be part of that long. My pleasure and my honor. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Bye, everyone. Photo Show Live is a production of Real Photo Show. Executive producer is me, Michael Chauvin Dalton. Please rate and review with all the stars on your favorite podcast platform. And now that you can watch artist presentations as part of the show, please subscribe to the Photo Show Live YouTube channel. Just follow the link in the show notes.